so Father, thank you for this place. Thank you that it's cooler. Thank you that we can come together. We pray for all those who are not here, Lord, and uh, for all the things they might be doing. Um, and we ask a blessing on, on us, Lord God. We ask it because you say that we are blessed already with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so, um, so I'm asking on the basis of that statement that you might make us to know that blessing tonight, that we would be filled with joy as we hear about you and as we learn more about you. So I thank you, Father, for the opportunity and I ask you to keep our minds set on you as we look at your word and listen to your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, um, Matthew 28, verse uh, 18 to 20, is where we started a couple of sessions ago. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Um, could somebody read those verses, please? Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Thank you. And that last statement, I am with you always, even to the end of, an, of the age, is really a, a, a kind of trigger for what we're going to talk about tonight, and that is that uh, in a way that we often forget or disregard, technically you don't become a Christian, you become a follower of Jesus, and you can only become a follower of Jesus because he's with you, even to the end of the age. So um, nowhere in scripture do you hear the word Christian, it doesn't exist, mm -hmm. and um, in the life of the earliest disciples, uh, or the early church, they were known by several different names, uh, the Way, the Sect of the Nazarenes, all sorts of names. And it wasn't until quite late, actually, in the life of the church, in Acts chapter 11, that the disciples, believers, were first called Christians. It took place in Antioch, um, and they were first called Christians there. And that was somewhere between 35 and 44 AD. So this, that might have been 10 years after, after his death. So what do you think, um, uh, it wasn't the disciples themselves who called themselves Christians, it was other people looking at them, so what do you think made them be identified as Christians? What do you think caused people to say that, call them Christians? Yes, the way they lived, the way they lived, it had to be the way they lived, the way they spoke, the way they behaved. It had to be that there was something different about them. And the word Christian means little Christ. Mm -hmm. So uh, it had to be obvious from their life and from what, so from what they did and from what they said that they were affiliated with Jesus Christ. That had to be obvious to non-believers. So now think about that and think about the church today in our country and what it means to be called a Christian here. And would people who are not Christians, not believers, would they be able to look at our lives and say, that person is a follower of Jesus? Because it is not possible to be a Christian and not be a disciple. The two things are incompatible. So although we hear people say, well, I'm a Christian, I mean, I've heard it preached from the front, well, there's many people here who might believe in the Lord Jesus, but you're not yet disciples, you're not yet followers of Jesus. That's impossible. The New Testament doesn't talk about that at all. So if you call yourself a believer, a Christian, 
You have to be a follower of Jesus. Otherwise, you're not a believer. You're not a Christian. Um, and so it's really important, I think, at the, at the start, thinking about how you're going to make disciples, is that you understand really what a disciple is. A believer is a disciple, disciple is a believer, and the word Christian means little Christ. So you can look at your own life and you can say, would people be able to look at me and say, that person knows Jesus? I mean, they might say it in a derogatory way, they might say it in a, that she's weird, you know, there can be all sorts of ways that they would recognise that, but is it recognisable in my life, in your life, that you are a believer, a follower of Jesus? So... Um, uh, you know, I, I just can't get the implications of that are tremendous. You know, we talked last week, I think we said, or the week before when we met, that uh, many people would tick the box Christian. But if the box said follower of Jesus, you probably wouldn't get that many people ticking the box. And um, it's only those people, it's only followers of Jesus who follow him straight to heaven. It's not the people who might call themselves Christians but would say they're not yet fully surrendered. They're not yet disciples of Jesus. So um, Jesus called us to go and make disciples. He says we are to know that he's with us till the end of the age. And um, so the first thing is, when we're talking about making disciples, what do we understand about what a disciple is, you know, and, and how a, a disciple lives? Because we didn't take on Christianity or become a believer of Jesus and just swap one set of rules for another set of rules. We didn't do that. So we're going to start just tonight in John chapter 1. So if you go to John chapter 1 and look at what Jesus did because we're supposed to be following him. So we should be looking at what he did and then assess, have we done our part in following him. So John chapter 1, John opens up with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And then verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, if I asked you, what exactly did Jesus do? What did God the Son do? I don't mean what did he do when he... But from these verses, what did God the Son do? Yes, and then? I know it probably seems simple, but really, literally, what did he do? He cre everything that was created was created through him and for him and by him. And then what did he do? Yeah, he did all of those things. But what does it say at verse 14? He became flesh. He became like a human being. Philippians chapter 2 will say, he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself and took the form of a bondservant, um, and even to the point of death. So what John's Gospel opens up with the truth that God, Jesus Christ is God, and that God became a human being. He took on flesh. God took our place. Because what did he do after he took on flesh and be, you know, became a human? What did he do? He dwelt among us and? He died. He died. He lived a perfect life. He lived the life we couldn't live. And then he died the death so that we didn't have to. So in his dying, what did he accomplish? 
Yeah, our salvation in what way? Forgiveness of our sins. Yeah. Think about just his death. What did he accomplish in his death? He died for you and for me. Individually and collectively, he died for... Okay. So what did he accomplish for us in that? Forgiven. He re accomplished forgiveness. Forgiveness. And what else? And then when he was buried and resurrected, what did he accomplish for us? Eternal life. Eternal life. He defeated death. So he, he accomplished for us, or made possible for us, eternal life because of his death and his burial and his resurrection. So um, think about what he did. What, who did he defeat at the cross? Death. What did he defeat? Death, death. death Satan, Satan, and sin. And sin. He defeated sin. He defeated, or he paid for sin, and actually wiped the slate clean for every human being that would actually receive that, that death and resurrection. So at the cross, he conquered enemies we can't conquer, right? He conquered our own sin, individual sin. He conquered Satan, who we were under the control of, and he conquered death, in that we, everyone would die. But now, we don't die. Those of us who believe in him don't die. So now, believing in the Lord Jesus and trying to follow him, we can't conquer sin in the way he did. We can't defeat Satan in the way he did. We can't um, uh, uh, do everything that he did. But in order to do what he did, he became a human being. Right? He humbled himself. Now, if you accept and understand what he did, what is your actual response to that? What should you be your response to that? Sorry, it's a bit of a convoluted question, not, not an easy question. So. You want to emulate. Yeah, before that, though, John. Yes, that's true. But before that... Okay, what Jesus did was he looked down at the planet, or God the Father looked down at the planet and said, you know, they, they've got no hope, they cannot get back. Therefore, you are going to have to make yourself like one of them and do something to enable them to get back. So he does that. He humbles himself for us. Yeah, but think about it. Think about how would you how would you emulate what he's done? He humbled himself. So what must you do? Humble yourself. It's like he took your place so that you would be able to put him back in his rightful place in your own life. Um, so when you're thinking about, okay, God humbled himself for me. God the Son decided that I was worth him humbling himself, not hanging on to the equality that he had with God the Father, and living and dying in my place. My automatic, necessary response must be, I am going to put him back. I don't actually physically put him back, but in my life and in my thinking, he takes the place on the throne of my life. He now is exalted in my life. Hello, Sue. No, don't worry. Um, he takes the place he should have had in my life from the beginning. We're talking about how we're looking at John 1 and talking about what, what Jesus did and then um, trying to talk about what we would do. I have to put him back where he belongs. How do you do that? How do you put Jesus back where he belongs? Yes, worshipping, surrendering, all true. Yes, but what has to happen? I mean, it really, really simply in very practical picture-type form, who you've got a throne in your life. There's someone on the throne of your life. Jesus. Yeah, he has to be on the throne of your life. Well, how do you do that? Yeah, so how do you actually do that? 
Yes, but how do you first put him on the throne, John? Because you see, two. Yes, yes, acknowledge him as Lord. Okay, but then how does that look? What does that look like? Do his will rather than yours. There, there. What did Jesus do all the time he was on earth? Only what he saw God the Father do and what he heard God the Father say. And right, it culminates, there's a lot of verses which I'll tell you later, we'll look at later, but it culminates in Luke 22, 42. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So what Christ did was he showed us how to live as a human being in right relationship with God. And that was submission to the will of God all the time. So he came off his own throne, if you like, and so he took himself off the throne and lived down here with us in the muck so that we could put him back on the throne of our individual life and submit our will to the Father. It's so important because actually what we teach in the Western Church, what we tell people the gospel is, is that you will get forgiveness for your sins, so if you can just stop doing those things, you'll be forgiven. You'll be saved. But actually that's not true. That's not the gospel. You could stop doing everything you've ever done wrong and start doing everything right and still be doing it with yourself on the throne. Mm -hmm it could all be for you and not for him so it's so important that when we're giving the gospel to people and this that's the first step of making disciples which is what this course is about the first thing that we, you have to understand is it's not their sin per se that we're talking about it's not the individual sins of people although they do need to confess them and they do need to repent of them it's the fact that they have wanted to be God in their own life that is what the great repentance is, that you stop wanting to be God and start letting God be God. So that's what people must turn from. They must turn from, not, not that they drink too much or they swear too much or they're committing adultery or they're homosexual or they're this or they're that. That's not what they must turn from. They've got to turn from their insistence that they are master of their own destiny that they will call the shots, that they don't have to submit to anyone. So where do you think that's hardest? <laughs> where do you think that gospel is hardest to preach? Which areas of the world? In affluent societies, where we, are, we grow up trying to stand on our own two feet, be independent, be self-assertive, be, be self, you know, self, they self-at. It's hardest to preach that gospel in this sort of environment. You can preach that gospel to people who are not on the throne of their lives. Mm. You know, you can say you need Jesus and he's going to save you and, and that will be accepted. That's why we're seeing that all over Asia, in the Arab world, you're seeing it in Africa, parts of Africa. This massive coming revival is happening around the world, but it's not happening here, not in the Western world. And that's because there is this great refusal, this hardness in people's hearts to actually submit themselves to the will of God. Self-sufficiency. Yes, so there's another well, self one. Mm. Yes, you are. We're taught it from an, from an early age. No, because they can, do their, they can rule their own destiny. So all, the, all of that to say, when we're preaching the gospel and we're trying to tell people about Jesus, the first thing to tell them is not... Do you know what? You really need to you know, sort your life out because you're not doing too good and if you could be like me, well, you'd be fine. <laughs> you know, 
it's really, it's really to understand. It's hard for them to come to that point of understanding that they're trying to run their own life and that they actually can't do that. It, and it's a complete rethink of everything that they've been taught often from you know, childhood up. So um, the understanding that being a disciple of Jesus involves saying, not my will, but yours be done. Um, believing in a biblical sense is, is that. That's what it is. It's, it's being willing to say, I don't know how I'm going to make that work every day of my life, but I am submitting myself to you. And I'm not going to be God. I'm not going to try to be God um, anymore. In, um, uh, I think it's in Genesis. Um, I know we're not quite there yet, so we'll get there in a minute. Okay, so um, the first thing then required in making a disciple is understanding what it means to be a disciple for ourselves and really assessing, am I on the throne of my life or have I really submitted my will to, to God? Have I really said, your will not mine be done? And uh, when you get to John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, what you get is that intimate uh, talking. It's over about three days, three or four days, uh, a lot of it in just one night with the disciples. And a conversation starts in um, chapter 14 that will continue all the way through to chapter 16. And it's one conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. And in the middle of it, he says in chapter 15, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This is me in Christ and Christ in me. It's very straightforward. But chapter 15 can't be taken just on its own. You have to look um, in the context of the whole conversation. And that started in chapter 14. So can we go back to chapter 14 and read verse 8 to verse 14 of chapter 14, please? Someone read it. 8 to 14. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Thank you. And then someone read verse 25 and 26. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things, and will remind you.
everything I have said to you. Thank you. Okay, so all the way through the, his ministry, Jesus has made it clear he and the Father are one. He only does what he sees him doing and he only speaks what he hears God saying. And now to Philip he says the same thing. He says that whilst he's been living in a human body on the earth, he has been abiding in the Father and the Father has been abiding in him. Now hold that word abiding. Think about Jesus abiding in the Father and the Father abiding in him. And then take that to John 15 and listen to him say, um, abide in me and I in you. So what he's saying is, essentially, what I have been doing, because the Father has been abiding in me and I've been abiding in the Father, you are going to do in exactly the same manner, because now I'm going to abide in you and you're going to abide in me. It's that abiding relationship that he's talking about. He only ever did anything that the Father did. Can you imagine? God the Son, he could do anything at any time, but he deliberately restrained himself and only did what he saw God doing. And he doesn't just begin it here in these chapters. He's been saying this from the beginning of the Gospel. So if you read John 5, go back to John 5. Um, John 5, verse 16 to 20. Um, for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but, but, but was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. I mean, it's almost exactly what he says to Philip in chapter 14. It's almost exactly, he even uses the same phrase, greater works. It's the same thing. So the greater works in chapter 14 are linked to the greater works he says he's going to show them in chapter 5. And the whole thing hinges on the understanding that in Jesus, God was working in and through Jesus. And now in us, Jesus will be working in and through us. Now it's important because break down these verses, let's just break them down and see what Jesus is actually saying. What does he say in verse 17? What's his first phrase? Of chapter 5? Of chapter 5. My father his work. My, yes, my father is working until now. Say yours again, Carol. What my father is always at his work to this very day. There you go, thank you. And I too am working. Right. My father is working until now. What does he mean? I thought God rested on the seventh day. What does he mean? What sort of work is God doing up until today? He's sustaining the universe. Yes. But what's he doing? Actually, what specifically, what is God doing that he has been doing since the beginning? Sustaining all things. Yeah, sustaining all things. But think about it in terms of humankind. What is, what is his 
purpose? What's his plan? What's his yes, but just just think about his plan, Carol. Yes, he's doing that, but his plan and his purpose to call men, mankind, back to him. Genesis chapter 3, you pick it up. They've, they've eaten of the tree of the uh, knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve have disobeyed him. Genesis 3 verse 9. Then the Lord said, well, that's verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Um, Verse 11, and he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? So what's the first thing in there that you read? From verse 8 and 9, man hides from God. Man hides from God. Why? Shame. Shame, disobedience, because he knows now that he's done something he shouldn't have done. So the instinct in mankind is now and forevermore to hide from God, to hide from God. So he, what is God's work? It starts here. What's his work? To call to man. Does he know where Adam and Eve are? Of course. Does he know what they've done? Of course. So what is, this is God. This is what we're being shown right in the beginning. Jesus says, my father is working until now. And what he knows is they'll, they'll remember this. This is their scripture, their mm-hmm. Old Testament. They will remember. His work is to call mankind back to himself. And he has been doing that since Genesis chapter 3. So my father is working. He hasn't stopped working since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. He is calling, 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 calling to people to come back to him. How does he call them? I mean, do you hear a trumpet in the sky? No? Through his word, through the prophets, and through the people of God. He calls them through the people of God. That's always how he's worked. Yes, sometimes there's been a bolt out of the blue, and he's come down as an angel, and he's actually spoken. But after he made a people for himself, almost always he spoke through those people to other people. What do you think he wants to say to people? You tell them he loves them, he longs for their fellowship. Yeah, just forget the love for a second. But, but what else might he want to tell them? Forgiveness. You're headed the wrong way. You're headed the wrong way. And you need to get back to me. So that call has been going on since the beginning. Now, we're not going to leave it there, because if you look at verse 21 to 24 in Genesis 3 you see something else very interesting. So the Lord God, um, sorry, uh, 21 to 20, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So, he calls to the man. He makes clothes out of um, uh, skins for them. Why does he make clothes for them? I mean, I know we know what that means. We meet as a covering, and later on we'll understand in Scripture. But at the time, 
Why did he make clothes for Adam and Eve? Because they realised they were naked. And the word is used here, they were ashamed. They were ashamed. So God now is not only just calling people, he is doing whatever he can do to cover their shame. So they're hiding from him. He's calling to them. He's asking them, did you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What's that opportunity for them? To confess. confess. So God is calling. He's... Get, he's asking a question so that they might confess. They don't, conf- well, they start blaming each other for why they did it. And then because they're ashamed, he covers their shame. He covers their shame. Now, these are all first instances in Scripture, and it's really important when you read a word for the first time in Scripture. It's all important because it's setting up a doctrine about God. Mm-hmm. What we're seeing about God from Genesis 3 is that even though they disobeyed, he still called to them. And even though they were ashamed because of their own sin, he still covered their shame. And now they're being put out of the garden. Why? Because that looks like terrible punishment, really, because they can't eat from the tree of life. Why is that? Why does he put them out of the garden? Yeah, but actually there's a specific reason in there that he says he's putting them out of the garden. It says, lest they eat from the tree of life and live forever. What would be wrong with them living forever? Because they were, there would be no way for them to come back to God. What, what did God say to them? If you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Die how? Die spiritually because you will now and forever be separate from me. And so if they had eternal life, then they would eternally be Exactly. They would be eternally separated from God. So actually it's an act of his mercy that he puts them out of the garden. Because he makes it possible now for a repentance and a turning. He makes it possible to send the Saviour that he's already planned, this is planned before the foundation of the world. He knows that he's going to do this, but they don't know. And so this is God showing us all the time his work of calling has been a work of mercy and grace. Death, physical death, is a work of his grace and mercy. See, we think of it completely the other way. But his knowing we will die one day puts an urgency in our mind and in our soul to, to figure out something about this world and about is there something else apart from me. And as you get closer to it, it starts to become more crucial that you answer that question. What is there after I die? What is there going to come? And you see it all around. You see it with people who are older. In our culture, that is the one thing that grabs the attention. So where will you go when you die? Is there a place after death? Is there something? In the East, they have that answered. Yes, there's reincarnation, there's this, there's that, there's the other thing. But here, here it's, it's, people are afraid because they don't know the answer to that question. And so, actually, death is God's grace. It is. Yes, it's the punishment for sin, of course, because you can't, God's sin has to be paid for. But our physical death reminds us of our spiritual death, that we don't know this God who created um, 
So, God is always calling us, and his work is forgiveness and mercy and atonement and grace and everything. And then, what does Jesus say next? He says, my father is working, and in John 5, I am working. I am working. So, okay, what is he actually doing? Um, read verse 19. Someone read John 5, 19 again, please. Yeah, so just read it, literally read it, Carol, because it's interesting the way he says it. My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. And then the next verse, please. Jesus gave them this answer, I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. In like manner, yeah. So, what is Jesus saying about what he does? Yes, and what he's saying is he's setting up really foundational truths here. I know it's simple, I know it's simple, but it's absolutely foundational to the work of making disciples, which Jesus began and he's left us to continue. So he says, I can do nothing of myself. Nothing. This is Jesus. This is God the Son. I can do nothing of myself. What do you think he might want his disciples to know? You can do nothing of yourself. Yeah, but remember, he needs the Father, but maybe, I mean, he's God. So this is now a voluntarily submitting to the will of the Father so that we will understand we might be able to do some stuff on our own, but we choose not to because, he, because Jesus chose not to. So what he's saying, I can do nothing of myself. I only do what I see the Father doing. And then what does he do? So if he's looking to see what the Father does, what does he do? He joins in. He joins in. Because he says, the Father abiding in me does the work. So he joins in with what the Father is already doing. Now just take that, take that. Jesus' little statement there, I don't do anything on my own. I don't rush about like a headless chicken trying to figure out who I'm going to talk to and what I'm going to do. I wait and I see and I'm dependent on the Father and I'm listening for him and looking at him and as I see him working, I join in. What does that mean for us? Who's the, the spirit that lives within you is the spirit of who? And God, the spirit of the Father and the spirit of the Son. The Holy Spirit of God lives in us. So... When we're thinking about what we might do, what do you think God's trying to tell us? Well, you know, we're yeah. great intentions. We're going we're gonna to make disciples. We're going to live for Jesus. We're going to build the church. We're going to do all the good things. And what do you think he wants us to know? Could you just slow down a bit and, and, and see where I'm working already? Lean up to your own Exactly, exactly. This idea that God is always at work, that means he's at work right now outside. He's at work in Sirencester. He's at work in London. He's at work in your family. He's at work in your home. He's at work here. He's at work everywhere, all the time. And as his disciple, what do you think he wants you to do? Join in. But to hear what he's doing so that we can... There you go. But what? Listen, look and hear. 
That's what Jesus says. I only do what I see the Father doing, and I only say what I hear the Father saying. Okay, he's doing that because he's submitted to God, and there's loads of verses that tell you that in John. Um, you just have to find them for yourself. I won't read them out. It'll be too much time. Um, how does he know, then, what the Father is doing? According to his words, he, he looks and he listens. He looks and he listens. And you get a fantastic example of it at the beginning of this chapter. John chapter 5, um, he says, After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. And man was there, who had been ill for thirty-eight years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? Mm. Now, just picture this, because this pool at Bethesda is heaving with people that are sick, that are lame, that have been carried there on mats and pallets, that have you know, been helped in by their relatives or tried to get there on their own. It is absolutely chock-a-block with people. And Jesus walks into the temple, and he comes here, and he, it says he sees this one man and he knows he's been sick for 38 years or for a long time. He knows he's been sick. How does he know this man has been sick for a long time? By the Spirit of God. By the Spirit of God, who lives within him. He has the Holy Spirit. Exactly. He, John, we, John records for us, he was baptised um, in John chapter 1. So he knows because he has the Spirit of his Father living within him, who is showing him... I'm at work in this area. I'm at work here. And I want you to speak to this man. I'm not saying he says that exactly in those words, but that's what Jesus is already says later in the chapter. I only do what he, he's, I see him doing. He's looked at this man and he's understood God brought him here today. And I'm here today. And he's been ill a long time and he's ready to hear what I'm going to say. And Jesus' question is, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? That in itself is interesting. Mm. Jesus, mm. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the father showed him that this man had been ill for a long time. He, um, Jesus has this conversation with him. And, and Jesus says to us in, in John 5.20, he tells us why the Father shows Jesus what, he, what he's doing. In John chapter 5, verse 20, it tells you why he shows him Jesus what he's doing. Why? First of all, because he loves him. Because he loves him. That's the first reason that Jesus gives. My Father shows me what he's doing because he loves me. And the second reason? So that Jesus will know what to do. You know, I'm not trying to belittle Jesus. He's God. He's God in the flesh. But what I'm trying to see is, okay, Jesus is deliberately 
having these things written down about him, because he's, he's the word, he's, he's the one who's inspired John to write this gospel. So he's deliberately writing these things down so that you and I might know how to walk and live as a Christian. And it's not that we're going to go to the pool at Bethesda and, and see this man who's lame. It's that we will be listening mm. and looking, understanding God's always working. He's always working. And he's always wanting us to join him in that work. So actually, from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep, God is working. And you are being called to work with him. I am being called to work with him. Doesn't that show us how vital it is that we're hearing him? This is what he strikes me. Definitely. Exactly. So, verse 21, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to him to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honour the Son even as they honour the Father. He who does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. And then he's going to go on a bit. Um, uh, and if you go to, to verse 29, um, and if you mark the word life in there, you're going to mark it about six or seven times in those few verses. What Jesus does, when he fo follows his Father, what he does has eternal ramifications. And what he does through you has eternal ramifications. See, this we have this huge tendency to look at ourselves and think, well, I mean, she said God was working, but really, you know, I mean, really me? Really? Oh, yes. That's what we do. We do that all the time. And that's deception. It's a lie from the enemy. What Jesus is setting up for us here is, just as God was abiding in me, God the Father abided in me, and I was doing his work, I'm going to abide in you, and you're going to do my work. And it is exactly the same. There's no difference. You are simply to concentrate on the, on the truth that he is working, and that he will use you to do his work. Now, um, how are we enabled then to do his work? Jesus says that he, the Father shows him what he's doing because he loves him. Why does Jesus show you what he's doing? Why does the Father? Yes, because he loves you. So what do you know about the work of Jesus or the work of God that he's going to involve you in? What do you know about it? It's going to be fantastic. You're going to love it. And, in, uh, and that's what Jesus will say in John 15 at the end of that uh, talk about abiding in him and us and him abiding with us. He says, I say these things to you that your joy might be made full, your, your, uh, that you, my joy might be in you and your joy made full. I mean, so you know, all of that up to that point has been for the purpose of joy in your life. So aligning yourself with the work of God will fill you with joy. It will fill you with joy. And as you are filled with that joy, you will start to understand more and more of the fact that God loves you. He loves you though you're useless. He loves you though you don't know what to do. He loves you though you make mistakes. He loves you though you sin. He loves you and he wants to include you in his work. And all he requires is what? 
that you say, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That you voluntarily get off the throne of your life and give it over to him. Um, John chapter 14. um, You've been called to make disciples and Jesus tells you that he will enable you to make disciples. John 14, verse 15 to 17. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, because he abides with you, and will be in you. Verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. John 15, 26, 27. Then when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. John 16, 5-8 But now I am going to him who sent me and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you sorrow has filled your heart but I tell you the truth it is to your advantage that I go away for if I do not go away the helper will not come to you but if I go, I will send him to you and he, when he comes will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment How will the Holy Spirit convict the world? through you. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment through you. Through you. Um, John um, uh, 16 verse 13 But when he, the spirit of truth, comes he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own initiative but whatever he hears he will speak. Can you see the same message? Whatever he hears, he will speak. Um, And he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said to you, he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. And then John 17, 20 to 23. um, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that's you and me, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Mm. Um, over and over and over again, this relationship that he, he says he has with the Father, he repeats into the relationship that we are to have with him. It's all by the Holy Spirit. It's even in him. The, the Father was abiding in him by the Spirit. Isn't it interesting that it says that in, in verse 14, um, chapter 16, um, he will not speak on his own authority. This is the Holy Spirit now, the Spirit of truth. Mm. But whatever he hears, yes. he will speak. So yes. it, it, it's hearing all the way along. All the way along. It's all the same. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And really that's the thing to understand that what Jesus talked about in John chapter 5 about I only do what I see the Father doing and say what I hear him saying, that's intended 
He's intending for that to be reflected in our relationship with him. That that will be a picture of his relationship with the Father. And it stems from, can only stem from, a submitted will. And what he's showing us is, if I can submit myself, if me, God, God himself, the one who created the world, who owns everything, who's the judge of the world, who's the saviour of the world, who everything hinges on, if I can submit myself to the will of the Father, why do you have trouble doing the same thing? It's, and, and it's there, actually. It's there when you, when you start to look at how many times he had to say he only did what the Father did, and he only said what he heard the Father say. You understand the absolute depth of human sin. You see it, that it's so strong in us, this desire to be like God. It's Pride. so strong in us. Pride and... Yeah. yeah. But it is really strong. And, and, and so it's easy to um, deceive people into thinking because they've given up certain things and taken on certain things that the central issue has gone. It has not gone. People can can clean up their act, they can believe certain things about Jesus, they can go to church every week, they can even read their Bible and pray and still not be saved. That is really crucial to understand because it's not enough to, clean, to keep to a set of rules. That's empty religion. And, that, and that's why it's so, it's, it's so imperative. I'm not suggesting anyone here is like that. I'm saying... But there are people out there who think like that. And that's a fake gospel. And it produces a fake Christian. And that ends up in fake salvation. And it's, it's tragic, actually. It's really tragic. So, um, but coming back to us, we're going to be making disciples. We're going to be um, understanding that that's what we're here for. We're here to witness to Jesus. We're talking here to talk about him and show him and so Jesus wants us to understand right from the outset that this commission that he's given us is um, and that we're going to fulfill is that we're not doing it alone we're not even doing it all Christians together we're doing it with him and with the father so the father is already at work you don't initiate anything nothing he is already at work. So, think about that. He, he wants to use you in his work, but he doesn't need to. He could write the gospel in the sky. He could do whatever he wanted at any time. But he chooses to do his work through you. So, you know I've already said that, that that will give you great joy. It will reinforce his love for you. That's the reason he chooses to work through you. Um, the, work, the, the commission to make disciples is his gift. It's a gift. It's not a duty. But how many people do you know who actually think that's a gift? That the work of discipleship making or evangelism or any of that, you know, that's, that's his blessing on our life. That, that's, that gives purpose and meaning and joy and all of it to our life. So he's already at work. No matter how useless you think you are, he has specifically chosen you for the people in your life. Just think about what that means. That means the people you work with 
God has decided to put you there in their life. Your friends, your acquaintances, your neighbours, the people you meet in the supermarket. God has specifically chosen you for them. I mean, honestly, that's madness, isn't it? Because really, would you choose yourself for them? Probably not. You'd send in Billy Graham, wouldn't you? Or somebody else. That would be hard. Yeah, well, you know what I mean. You'd send in somebody super spiritual, someone who really knew their stuff. You'd never think that God was going to use you and has specifically chosen to use you for those people. Because that's what we do. That's the deception we believe. Is there sometimes the most difficult people? Because Yeah, of course, they are difficult. Yeah, they are. But let's think, God is already at work. He's already at work. Yeah. So, so you live with someone who's not a believer, you, whatever, your children are not believers, your friends are not believers. God's already at work. And what's he first done? He saves you. <laughs> yeah, it's a miracle. And he's put that miracle in front of their eyes. That's what he's done. And, and now, as you go on with the Lord, what's going to happen to you? What happens to you as you go on with the Lord? You become more like him. You're transformed. And you're transformed from glory to glory. And that's happening all the time. And that's happening in front of them. So now think about it. all the decisions you make, all the things you say, how you say it. In fact, I've been caught up this week because um, I fly off the handle very quick. My father had a very quick... He, hadn't, he was a lovely, lovely man, but he, he loved a debate and he, always, he looked very fiery. And that's how I look. You probably can't believe it, but I am very quick, especially with my husband, to back. And he said to me, I thought you were supposed to be a Christian. I know. I said to him, that's a cop-out thing to say, you know, when you don't know how to get me, you get me with that. <laughs> but it's true, it's true. I'm supposed to be a Christian. Therefore, I'm supposed to be gentle. I'm supposed to listen, before, think before I speak. I'm supposed to listen more than I shout. <laughs> I'm supposed to be aware of the fact that God's at work in him, towards him, and that I'm the one God's using in that. So he's right, I should be aware of that. But the thing is, I have to remind myself of that every day. I have to remind myself that God is at work in and through me and that as I change, as I am made more like Christ, I don't mean as I try to clean myself up, but as I am made more like Christ, as I say, okay, not my will but yours be done, that work of God towards my husband, is, it grows and it's impacted and he starts to see things that he didn't see before and that's how it works. That's how it works, and that's how it works with all of us. Yes. God has, in, has decided to put you in that person's life. I mean, I was married at 19, and I was 40 when I became a Christian. I had a lot of years before with my husband, before I was a Christian. And I've had a lot of years since then. And there should be a before and after. Do you know what I mean? There should be. There should be a before and after. There should be a before and after in your life. There should be. And okay, maybe the before and the after sort of bled into each other for a little while, so they weren't, it wasn't a direct change. But now you should be able to look back and say, I'm not what I was. You know, no matter what that was, I'm not where I was. So for example, I drive at the speed limit. I never used to. That's a recent innovation. <laughs> it is. It is. I was always speeding, always, because my time was so important and I needed to be somewhere very quickly. So... 
Yeah, I was, I was always speeding. I don't drink anymore. There's so many things that are, have happened to me. I'm much slower to speak than I used to be, even though I'm still too quick with my husband. But I'm much slower to speak. There are definite changes in my life that I can point to and say, that is the work of God in my life. And the, yeah, but the thing is, it tends to be very myopic. You know, we're thinking about ourselves. But actually, if you start to think, okay, that's what God's doing so that he can impact all the people that I know and, and live with, it becomes totally different. This is not just about me anymore. This is about God's work through me. Um, so that's the point of, in John 14 when Jesus um, says, uh, God, you know, he only does all these things that he sees um, God doing. And in John 14, verse 12, he says, We would do greater works than Jesus because there'll be more of us doing them. More believers filled with the Spirit. God is working all over the world. He's working in this country. He's working all the time. And he want, he's including you and us. So how will you respond then to that? If you believe that, how will you respond to it? What will you do when you go home tonight? I don't mean not shout at your husband or the person you live with. I just mean what will you do? What will you decide? Okay, I'm going to do this now. I'm going to set this up in my life. I'm going to ask him to work it. Right. More. Yeah, but remember, just think about what Jesus was doing. Yeah, we want change, wholesale change I need in my life, Carol. But, you know, let's think about what this is about. This is about making disciples. This is about knowing that God is working and that we're only going to do what we see him doing and say what we hear him saying. So what must I do in order to be able to see and to hear? Ask him. Yeah, ask him, right? I have to spend time with him. Because if I don't spend time with him, I can't recognise his work yeah. and I can't hear his voice. Yeah. So I have to spend time with him. So what does that mean, spending time with him? How does that... You have to organise your calendar so that you don't fill it with everything else. You have to organise your calendar. You have to spend time with him in prayer and in reading scripture and in fellowship, actually, in fellowship with other believers. Yeah. I don't mean having a cup of coffee, but I mean real fellowship. You have to be together... You know, and, and, and get to know the sound of God's voice. So when you get up in the morning, having done that, so you're deciding you're going to get to know God, you're going to spend more time in the Word, you're going to spend more time praying, you're going to get together with other Christians and encourage one another and all of the wonder of that. And then in the morning you're going to wake up and what are you going to say? What are you going to pray? What you want me to do today? Yeah. Yeah. Basically, show me what you're doing so that I can come along with you. Give me, open my eyes, open my ears, so that I can hear your voice and see your work, and so that I recognise the opportunities that you're giving me. That's the thing. Because most of the time we walk around in a dream, don't we? We don't really think about this. Do you really think about this every day? I don't. I don't think, oh, God's at work, so let me think about what he's doing. But it's, so it's that training. We've got to, in advance, do that. So... Um, what do you think might happen if you pray that prayer? So I've, I've written out here, God, give me eyes to see how and where you're working in people's lives around me today. I know that you're already working and that you want to include me in your work, so help me to see and hear what you want me to see and hear throughout the day. What do you think God will do with that prayer? He'll answer it. In what way? Who knows? Yeah, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? But don't you think you might... 
you might be sitting on the bus or on the train and you might, I don't know, you might be sitting next to someone and they might say, oh, do you know, I, I, I'm you worried about all this North Korea, you know, nuclear bomb stuff. No, but so what I mean is you'll hear someone say that. Yeah. Or someone, one of your friends will say, oh, do you know, I feel really bad about that. I, you know, I, I just, I, I, don't, I, I really did something terrible and I don't know how to make it right. And, or, I'm, or someone will say, I'm really struggling with this in your workplace. Someone will say, I'm really struggling with this and I just don't know what to do. And what will happen is that you will recognise that is God at work towards that person. And he is giving you now the way to respond to that. So it's not like, well, I'm going to take my Bible and read him John chapter 14, verse yeah. 6. You know, um, it's that he will give you what to say and it will be relevant to what he's already doing. So if someone says, I'm really struggling with this, you know that God's at work in their lives. You know that God's at work because they're struggling. And if they say, I'm really afraid, I'm really afraid, and people are afraid, they're afraid. I'm really afraid. I mean, the government's in disarray now again, isn't it? So it's like, who knows what's going to happen? And people are afraid. They're tottering. And so they do sometimes talk about it. And so that's God at work, allowing them to feel that fear waking them up to the reality that their life is short and that things bad happen so that you can come in and say what he wants you to say to them or be what he wants you to be to them. My um, daughter-in-law's, my daughter's mother-in-law's sister, it's convoluted, just died of cancer. She was only 61 and um, she wasn't a believer. So it's a terrible situation, actually, at the minute. It's a really terrible situation. And they've got the funerals tomorrow. And um, so my daughter's kind of, you know, she knows that she's got to go. She hates funerals, absolutely hates them, but she knows that she's got to go. And she trusts that God is going to work, but she doesn't quite know how that's going to pan out and what she's going to say. So she's been, you know, I've been talking to her about it and about the fact that we none of us know what to say. You know, and actually, you might be there just to listen, yes. not to say anything. Mm -hmm. You might be there just to put your arms around your mother-in-law and say, I'm so terribly sorry, and cry with her and hold her. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's not necessary that you actually do something or say something. Yes. It's only necessary that you recognise the opportunities and ask the Lord to show you how to yes. respond. And it's not even necessary that you get it all right, because no. you won't. It's only necessary that you want to do it. Mm -hmm. he will make up for yes, he will. His invitation is always to, um, to go along with him in his work and he will always make opportunity for it. And it is that, really, that understanding, I think, that we're going to finish with tonight because if we could just get that understanding that God's always working, he's always calling people back to himself, he wants everybody to be saved, and he's put you in their life to witness to who he is. And it's not a difficult, arduous thing. It sounds scary sometimes, but it's simply, if you want to, to if you're willing to submit your will to his, and you're willing to spend the time to get to know him, he, that's all he asks, get to know me, and I'll work through you. Spend time with me, and I will say and do things through you.
And it's, that's just wonderful, isn't it? Because we're going to be the beneficiary of it. We're going to be the ones receiving joy and understanding his love for us. Um, so, and, and what does Jesus call that? Just going back to Jesus in John 15. When Jesus talked about abide in me, I am the true vine, abide in me. Um, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. And then my Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. So what's going to happen when you um, do all of this or get closer to God, listen to his voice, understand he's always at work, what is he going to bring about in you? Fruit. Fruit. Fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control, all of that. And also the fruit of disciples. You're going to find that you make people who want to know your God. And that's what, he'll do the rest. He'll do the rest. Yeah. Mm. So, there you go. Any questions? It was simple, wasn't it? So simple. Sometimes I do this and I think... Yeah, it's just so simple, but some of us, I'm doing it honestly, Kate, and I'm thinking, everybody knows this already. This is so, but it is just so simple, so straightforward. But, so you read the scriptures, but you see something different in it. Yeah. Every time, and then you Yeah, yeah, but we all get something. We all miss something. I think that's why we need fellowship. That's why we need to be together. Yeah. Because. You know, the world wants us to overcomplicate mm-hmm. it. And I think the evil one wants us to overcomplicate mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. So we go, ooh, that's so complicated, I can't do mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And also, conversely, if a thing is really complicated, it, it builds me up if I understand it. Oh, my goodness, I get this because I'm super intelligent, super bright, you know, and I'm, I'm wise. That's what that does. If it's very complicated, but actually the Bible's really simple. Yeah. It's really, really yeah. simple. It's just, yeah, and the reason it's simple is because compared to God, we are pea-brained. We're just tiny brains. The disciples weren't mega-brains. No, no. But Paul was very intelligent, very well-educated, very articulate, but he he spoke very clearly and very simply. And um, and, but the 12 disciples. No, no, they weren't, no. No. Yeah. But I just think, you know... The thing is, well, I've said so many times, we're described as sheep. You can't get more stupid than a sheep. I know, and I thought how, I can sort of see why they're not Exactly. We're sheep. We can't even we get ourselves up if we fall over. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, yeah. So, I think he repeats and repeats and repeats. That's what you see in John's Gospel. Repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat. Start again. Repeat, repeat, repeat. Because we need it repeated so many times. That's how we teach children. Yes. Before we get it, and also by example, very much. That's just. I was talking to Brenda, a friend of my staff, one Monday evening, and I had friends home with cat. And he said, Well, as a father, I can tell you all about sheep. And he told us about sheep. They are the most stupid animals. Panic. Oh, yes, well. They're cute then. Yeah, they're cute. <laughs> they're cute. I've got um, a list of sheep facts, yes. you know, and it is quite interesting to read. 
Yeah, and it's actually interesting to lay it against, um, to, you know, God calling us sheep and to see what the shepherd has to do for the sheep. Yes. Really interesting to see that and see what God does for us. Anyway, so, Father, thank you. Thank you for the simplicity of it. Thank you that it isn't rocket science, and so we can understand it, Lord, and thank you that you deliberately made it simple so that we could know you, and because you want us to know you, and thank you that you're still calling to each of us to come closer, come closer, draw closer to me. Lord, it's just such a wonderful privilege to know that, and and to know that you're calling us into your work, really, because we're... Who are we, Lord, that you would do such a thing? And so um, I thank you. We all thank you, Lord, for using us in your work. We thank you for the promise of joy and the fact that you love us. We we thank you, Lord, for it all and ask that you just do not allow us to stray too far from you, Father. Just keep us close so that we do really recognise your voice and follow you. And I thank you, Father, that, that... because you've already said that that's what you want, we can know that this prayer will be answered. I just love that, Lord God, that we're really only praying back to you what you've already said to us. And so we thank you, Father, because we know it will be fulfilled in us. We ask you to help us along the way so that we do only what we see you doing and say only what we hear you saying. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen, amen. amen. amen.